This is the Show Up and Stay podcast. I'm your host, Deanne Knighton. I am a cusper. No, not an Aquarius Pisces cusper. I wish. They seem so exciting. I'm a legitimate Pisces, which, according to someone somewhere, makes me emotional and impressionable. You don't know me. If I was a Pisces Aquarius cusper born just three days earlier, I would be spiritual, artistic, peace-loving, and friendly. Those born on the Aquarius Pisces cusp are highly original people. Damn it. So close. Alas, the type of cusper I am is a Gen X cusper. Born at the tail end of the post-baby boom generation on February 24th, 1980, which for most of my life, I believe, was the day of the miracle on ice, because that's what I was told. And as my horoscope says, I'm impressionable, so I totally bought it. It was not until I was in my 20s and I shared the story with some coworkers over email, only to be shamed publicly and corrected by a baby boom Gen X cusper, no doubt, that the miracle on ice was two days earlier. The upset where the U.S. hockey team beat the Soviets in one of the greatest sports upsets of a generation. I was born two days later, the day they actually won the gold medal against Finland. And Jim Nagel, if you are listening, I see that playoff ticket stuff for that day you posted on eBay, and I'm coming for it, big time. So I am a Gen X millennial cusper, otherwise referred to as Xennials, unofficially. We are a micro-generation born between the years of 1977 and 1985. According to Pew Research Center, which is a source I trust, Generation X was born 1965 to 1980, and the Millennial Generation is 1981 to 1996. I do think there's something interesting about being somebody who straddles both lines. It's kind of been a story of my life. I'm the youngest of five children, so most of my growing up years was spent with people older than me definitely those that were part of Generation X. Once I hit school age and was working to assimilate with my peers, I did have some difficulties with that, and I don't think it's an unlikely coincidence that I spent a good part of my teenage years and 20s with people much older than me. There was something that felt comfortable about that for some reason. As I moved into sales leadership and began hiring people much younger than me on a regular basis, that dynamic definitely shifted and I had to make some adjustments. But before I move on, I just have to make a quick side note. Did you know that there is a generation of people from the late 1800s that are referred to as the lost generation? A whole generation of people. Wow, it's rough. If you are a Generation X millennial cusper, a millennial, and even in the early stages of the post-millennial generation, then there is a very likely chance that when you were in grade school, you experienced the power of the D.A.R.E. program. Yes, the t-shirts that people wear ironically now. D.A.R.E. stands for Drug Abuse Resistance Education. What's up, guys? Hey, you seen Mike skate lately? Yeah, he's here all the time. He's really good. You guys want to feel good? What's going on, guys? What is that? Nothing. 
Come on, give me that. How are you gonna be any good on your board if you're doing this stuff? Hey Mike, what's it gonna take for us to skate like that? Well, first off, this has nothing to do with it. It takes a lot of time and practice, dedication, and stay away from the drugs. You're right, Mike. Right on. You said it, man. Sweet, bro. Yeah, man. DARE started in 1983 and was a response of the Ronald Reagan administration to what was referred to at the time as the War on Drugs. It was created by the Los Angeles Police Department and then brought to schools all over the United States. Eventually, it was believed to have been delivered in 75% of the schools. At the time it was running, it was considered successful because of its rapid growth and expansion. It's easy for our brains to equate expansion and growth with success. But when you're looking at a program that's costing millions and millions of dollars in taxpayer money every year, there needs to be some deeper evaluation of the actual outcomes of this program. Just because it's spread doesn't mean that we knew it was working. There's a great deal of controversy around the effectiveness of this program, but it's hard not to make some comparison to some of the recent media cautionary tales that we've heard about, like WeWork and Theranos, where a lot of money was put into something that wasn't really vetted properly. Okay, DARE wasn't breaking any laws. It was just jarring to hear that 600 to $750 million per year over a 25-year period was dropped into this program. And during its run, all kinds of changes have happened to the world of substance use disorder, including the spread of the opioid epidemic. All of a sudden, the perpetrators were in our parents' medicine cabinets, not on the streets. So DARE was created by the LA Police Department and was meant to bring together this idea of law enforcement and students. Armed police officers would go into classrooms to teach this curriculum to our youth. Over time, several studies have come forward demonstrating the ineffectiveness of this program. This is drugs. This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? In 2020, the APA released results of an extensive study stating no measurable positive impact as a result of the program. There's a few key reasons that it didn't work. Right out the gate, the curriculum was developed in a vacuum, had no consideration for diverse backgrounds and experiences, which is not a unique problem. Armed police officers in schools teaching dull curriculum and asking students to be informants feels like kind of a weird dynamic. There was hysteria that it created, a tainted impression of the issue. I know for me, as a product of an education that included this curriculum and the commercials, that my biggest fear about drugs came in the form of some faceless man asking me to buy drugs from him in a parking lot. This seems like a miss, and not surprisingly, guess where my addiction aligned? If I could justify my actions as non-criminal, then somehow it meant I was okay and I did not have a real problem. From the perspective I have today, what a load of horseshit. 
And lastly, the curriculum deepened the stigma treads that we are still trying to dig our tires out of today. Is this yours? No, I'm... Mother said she found it in your closet. I don't know, one of the guys must... Must have what? This seems like a good opportunity to pivot and talk about the subject of the teenage brain. You, all right? I learned it by watching you. Parents who use drugs have children who use drugs. It's kind of terrifying. Who is that guy they got to close it out at the end? Frontline did an interesting collection of interviews with neuroscientists discussing some of the recent findings related to the development of the teenage brain. I'll include a link to this in the show notes, but in the meantime, here's a quick summary of some of the key findings. From the work of Deborah Yergelin-Todd, she is the Director of Neuropsychology and Cognitive Neuroimaging at McLean Hospital in Belmont, Massachusetts. Her recent work suggests that the teenage brain actually works differently than adults and that they process emotional information from external stimuli differently as well. In addition to emotional responses not being as well regulated by the prefrontal region of the brain, there also was some interesting findings around an increased likelihood for the subjects in her study to misread emotional reactions of others. So in the process of identifying fear, in a particular pilot study she did, 100% of the adults actually identified the emotion as fear, but only half of the teenagers. They thought it was sadness or confusion, or that they didn't know. This is a small study, so I don't want to overemphasize or draw too many conclusions, nor does she, but I still think it's interesting to think about. Probably of most important note is to understand and know that the executive region, the prefrontal cortex of the brain, of a teenager does not operate in the same way as an adult. This is believed to be tied to behaviors like increased impulsivity and not being as aware or understanding of what negative consequences might mean for them. And this is obviously important when you're thinking about the introduction of substances for kids at a young age. Dr. Jacob is a neuroscientist at the National Institute of Mental Health, and he has been doing research on the adolescent brain and has found information that is definitely leading towards some reconsideration of the myth of the first three years. According to Gad, when the brain is first developing, the brain produces way more cells and connections than it actually needs. And then there's over time an elimination of the unneeded parts. Only a small percentage actually makes it. This happens in the womb and through the first couple of years of life. It wasn't until recently that they discovered a second wave of overproduction showing up in brain scans. The second wave occurs as the child is preparing to enter the next stage of life from adolescent to the adult years. The brain is still doing work to form in adolescence. He describes this period of time as the selection process, where people start to specialize. This is what I'm good at. This is where we start to whittle away at life's choices and focusing on the things that we want to pursue. 
He does talk about the risk of a lose it or use it principle that holds true in the late teenage years. We don't have to be neuroscientists to know that substance use can definitely impact this crucial process. Dr. Gedd said the following in the interview. There has been a great deal of emphasis in the 90s on the critical importance of the first three years. I certainly applaud those efforts, but what happens sometimes when an area is emphasized so much is other areas are forgotten. And even though the first three years are important, so are the next 16. And the ages between 3 and 16, there's still enormous dynamic activity happening in brain biology. I think that might have been somewhat overlooked with the emphasis on the early years. A little more on the brain. We talked about the frontal lobe, the CEO of the brain, that is important as it relates to impulse control. Another part of the brain, the corpus callosum, this is where problem solving and creativity are. And this continues to develop all through adolescence and into the early 20s. The cerebellum is responsible for coordination, both physical and cognitive processes. The amygdala controls our reactions. Teens rely on this for emotional processing much more than adults do. This is where risk-taking lies. It's an evolutionary part of our being. It's the thing that drives us to leave the nest and seek sexual partners. I don't think that anyone's arguing that teenage substance use is an issue. However, it's important to note that we only continue to add to the pile of reasons why this is an issue we need to look at. Youth who begin drinking at 11 to 12 years of age are twice as likely to develop alcohol use disorder as those who wait until they're 21. If you haven't had a chance yet to listen to our episodes on the addicted brain that I did with Nate, last year, I definitely suggest going back and giving that a listen. Additionally, this relates to the episode we did earlier this season on dopamine. Dopamine heightens what scientists call salience, which is the pull of a stimulus. And the first time that you do something that you enjoy, the dopamine reward comes after the event. But over time, the dopamine gets released earlier and earlier. The CEO, or the frontal lobe, is what we need to be able to keep this in check. The teenage brain isn't ready for that kind of responsibility. Hey, we'll be right back. Show Up and Stay is a 501c3 nonprofit on a mission to build tools and content that will bridge the recovery gap. The recovery gap is the distance between healing from the substance and healing your life. There are so many ways that you can support our project. You can donate at showupandstay.org. You can follow us on Instagram at showupandstay.org. You can follow and subscribe to the podcast on the platform of your choice. And take a minute to write a review. Literally just listening to the podcast on a weekly basis helps. We post new episodes every Tuesday. I like to say we have a bit of technology and science, but primarily storytelling and heart. Now back to the show. Look, it's drugs with a crazy wig and sparkler. Pokemon! I don't think that's right, drugs. Nobody asked you. 
Crayon. This is a clip from the television show Community. And Pierce, played by Chevy Chase, is taking on the role of drugs. The kids are loving it, but the rest of the team is not so sure that this drug awareness campaign is going as planned. What do you want us to do? Should we get the Dean? Should we call in a bomb threat? Should we set off the sprinklers? It's not that big a deal. I think the kids are into it. Yeah, but I don't think that they're getting the message. Yeah, but do kids ever really seem like they're getting the message? I think it's sinking in. Well, I guess it's your call. And anyway, he's about to get flushed down a toilet in the next scene, and he'll be done. I wish I had never even met drugs. So after some troubling publicity, Dare is still alive and well, promoting the curriculum of the Keeping It Real program. And according to some studies, there does appear to be some efficacy with the program. These behavioral scientists suggest that a hands-on program free of lectures that doesn't focus on the harm that drugs do, but actually gives and models real life interactions is preferred. The major theme between this program and the DARE program that was used for years prior to is that it's based in science. There are studies to support the curriculum. The real in keeping it real is an acronym. The R stands for refuse. The E stands for explain, the A stands for avoid, and the L stands for leave. Here's a few highlights of some of the core values that this program promotes. The first is options and choices, and differentiates between a simple preference and a wise choice. The second lesson talks about risk and identifies risks that could be potentially harmful to them. It also speaks to the risk that can be present in what are seemingly safe situations. Lesson three is about communication and conflict and the idea of saying no, not agreeing with the views of others, even if they might be popular. Lesson four is about refusal, and they actually role play how to say no to a situation that doesn't serve them. Explain. This gives them the ammo to actually be able to explain the reasons for their actions the reasons that they might be saying no, so that they can help other people understand their choices effectively. Lesson six is about avoidance of potentially dangerous situations. Lesson seven is about how to leave, how to get away from a situation that doesn't feel safe. Lesson eight is about normalizing choices that make them feel good about themselves and show consideration for the people that they love and care about. Lesson nine teaches them about the validity of their own feelings and personal choices. And lesson 10 is all about how to find support if they need it. I don't know much more about this program than you do, but I'm also interested about how we make sure we structure the compelling reasons why, especially for teenagers. And especially as we are learning more and more concrete information about the brain. It seems to me the more objective information that could be included in the teaching, the better.
for now. Thanks for being here. And I hope you have a wonderful week. Be well. For more information, please visit our website at showupandstay.org. You can follow us on Instagram at showupandstay.org. If you're interested in collaboration or being a guest on our show, please email us at info at showupandstay.org. This podcast is written, created, and produced by yours truly. We feature original music created and produced by the wickedly talented Katie Hare.